We're moving on in Mark. We're up to Mark chapter 2 now. And yet I'd just like to remind us of what we've got there in Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is what could be called an ambiguous genitive. It can be read two ways. It can be read as meaning the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or the gospel of Jesus, that is, the gospel which Jesus taught. And I've suggested elsewhere that the gospel records that we have, for example, Matthew, Mark, etc., these are uh, the, the transcripts, as it were, of the preaching of the gospel which Mark or Matthew or Luke or John usually made. So after the Lord Jesus died, people like Matthew and Mark were going around teaching people what had happened. And then as time went on and the Lord didn't return, under inspiration, those uh, accounts that they had given were written down and circulated, and we have them uh, as, as the Gospels. So if you want to know what the Gospel is, you read the Gospel. The Gospel, according to Mark, is Mark's account of, of the Gospel. And interestingly, um, they all seem to begin in one way or the other with a reference to Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, particularly the promises to Abraham and David, and they conclude with the account of, uh, of baptism, the, the command to be baptized in one form or, or another. Now, that is pretty well, I think, where a lot of us would, would begin and end our teaching of the gospel with the promises that God made in the Old Testament, their fulfillment in Jesus, his uh, moral and ethical teaching, and the, obviously his death and resurrection, and the need to be baptized into him. So then, as we're reading Mark, we are, I think, reading, in a sense, also Jesus telling us about himself. And in fact, in Mark's Gospel in particular, there is a lot of emphasis upon the, the body language of Jesus. And you can almost imagine how he, uh, how he acted. Uh, for, exa for example, in verse 8 here, when Jesus immediately perceived in his spirit what they were thinking, he said, um, you can sort of imagine almost the look on his face. And then in verse 12, the man arises and takes up his, his bed. And verse 13, Jesus went forth. He also got up and, and moved on again uh, by the seaside. And I think it's as if we are being asked to sort of zoom in close on Jesus here. And yet, all good writing really depends upon getting ordinary people to identify with the, the characters that are presented. And I think in Mark, and probably in all the Gospels, we are encouraged to identify with the disciples. And they are particularly presented in Mark as uh, failing, as being weak in their understanding, uh, ungrateful in, in some ways, and yet their basic loyalty, by God's grace, uh, is what pulls them through uh, in the end. Of course, it's God's grace that uh, brings them through, but in the end it's their basic loyalty, which, uh, despite all their, their weakness, their failure, misunderstandings, etc., it's that which is ultimately of, of value. And so we are being encouraged to see ourselves as the 21st century equivalent of those men who, who followed, and women, uh, who followed Jesus around the streets and the lanes of, of Galilee and uh, 1st century Palestine.
And I wondered if that's why Mark talks quite often about what happened within houses. That a lot of the meetings that he records of Jesus happened within houses. And I suppose that the community for whom Mark was first writing would have probably met in in house churches. And of course the idea was that just as Jesus had had all this series of meetings and encounters and teachings that he gave in homes, so in a sense that continues with us. And I wonder if that's also why in a lot of the accounts of the healings that you've got in Mark, he uses a word, a Greek word that's translated healing or curing or whatever, that also means to save. Because I guess he realized that there would come a dispensation, or let's say inspiration realized, there would come a dispensation where the dramatic miracles would be no longer. And at that time, that is in our days, the essence of following Jesus would still be the same, that he could do these amazing things in people's lives in terms of saving them. It's like we read in, in chapter 1 about the cleansing of the leper, and yet that word cleanse is frequently used about the forgiveness of sin. And in fact, here in, in Mark 2, uh, in the opening incident that, that we've read there, we have, again, this connection between the forgiveness of sin and the healing of sickness. And Jesus is basically saying, in verse 10, well, verse 9, what's easier for me to say to the, the sick person, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and take up your bed and walk? But I'm doing this so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So I think the experience that we have of forgiveness of sin is a sort of a continuation, a point of con continuity with what was going on there in those early days. And we may consider that, oh no, it was all different then. Jesus was himself there and doing miracles and, and they saw it, etc. But, you know, in our day it is not so dramatically different. This is, I think, the, the point of these Gospel records, to carry us along with the disciples. Uh, because they are the ones, I think, that we specifically identify with. And in fact, in Mark, um, he several times mentions how the disciples followed Jesus in the way, in his way. And the Gospel of Mark is, is punctuated by these uh, descriptions of what the, the way to Jerusalem was like, what areas they passed through, etc. And so, the Jesus who walked around Palestine, etc., with a, a very definite aim in view, that is, uh, going towards Jerusalem to death and thereby to resurrection and glorification, he is being set up as the pattern for all of us. That as those disciples followed him in the way, which, as I say, you, you've got at least four times at different points in, in Mark, so we also are following the Lord in the way of our lives in, in this age in, in which we live. And so then, the, uh, the Gospel of Mark is his retelling of the Gospel. And if you really want to know what the Gospel is, and this is quite a, uh, quite a sort of controversial question, because for some people, the Gospel is a very uh, elaborate set of theological positions, which all may be true, um, but for them, you've got to understand all of them, or you don't understand the Gospel. 
Well, the gospel according to Mark was what you've got from chapters 1 to 16. And the gospel according to Matthew was what you had from chapters 1 to 28. Now, of course the gospels differ. Not in fact, not in the sense that they contradict each other, but there is a different choice of incidents. There's a different um, sort of uh, cement, as it were, in between the different uh, sections that, that are, are strung together. And I think that's because each of these people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, etc., were writing for a specific audience, the, the group of maybe uh, house churches that they had established. And so for each of us, we will, I think, focus ourselves on different aspects of the gospel. Different things about Jesus mean different things to, to different people. Not that the essential uh, doctrine or theology of fact actually changes, uh, between the Gospels, of course it doesn't. But, the, for example, here in Mark, there, there's a big emphasis all the way through on persecution. And also, I notice, of failure uh, during trial or, or persecution. For example, Mark is, is the shortest Gospel, and yet he gives the most emphasis to the failures of Peter. He gives us the the, the most lengthy and detailed description of uh, all Peter's failures, and uh, particularly the, the three denials at, at the end. And I, I wondered if that is because he was writing to a community that were under persecution and some of them had failed, that persecution. We tend to focus on all the wonderful stories about early Christians who refused to uh, swear to Caesar, or, or they refused to do this, that, or the other, and so they were thrown to the lions and they were killed, etc. But for every one Christian who did that, there was probably a stack who did give in under trial, under pressure, at the last moment. And what of them? And I wondered if Mark's gospel is, in a sense, an encouragement to them that there is still restoration and acceptance uh, even for them. And that is where I think we start to identify with the disciples as they're presented here in, uh, in Mark particularly. So then, here in Mark 2, we have this case of this sick man who's carried by four people, and they break the roof up and let, let him down. And verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, and you can put a box around the word there, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the, the palsy, I'm reading from the AV today, uh, Son, your sins be forgiven you. Now, when he saw their faith, he, got, he gave forgiveness and healing uh, to, the, to this man. Now, this is something that we can spend all our lives subconsciously, I, I suppose, chewing over and thinking about. Because it does imply, or it doesn't imply, it actually states that to some degree, to some degree, the forgiveness and healing and salvation of others can depend on third parties. When he saw their faith, he gave the man forgiveness. Now, that, I, I think, has got to be uh, kept, in its, uh, kept in its context, because it's obvious that God deals with individuals, as he explains in, in Ezekiel uh, 18 and plenty of other passages in the Old Testament, that he deals with people as individuals, as they stand or fall before him. And yet, it is also true that, <clears throat> to some extent, the prayers and the efforts of third parties can play a part in what I would call the final algorithm of, uh, of an individual's salvation. 
And if that is not the case, well then there is no point in praying for people. There is no point in, in uh, making any effort for another because we could say, well, it's all up to them. You know, if they want to be righteous, if they want to be disobedient, that's up to them. I can't do anything about it. That's their lookout. Whereas, in fact, it does definitely seem that there is an element in some cases whereby our prayers can lead to another's forgiveness. You have this at the end of James 5, that uh, we should pray for others so that they might be saved. And he who saves a sinner from eternal death because of their intercession and their efforts has done a great thing. And there's plenty of examples, Moses particularly, uh, in the Old Testament of where people did just that. And yet, there are other examples, as God says in one time, even if... Daniel and Job and Samuel were here, I would still not listen to their prayers and change my intended purpose against Israel. So, putting all that together, there are some, I suppose those who basically do believe, but who are weak, or maybe going through a weak part of their life, who would be saved if we prayed for them. And maybe they will not be, because there was no one to stand in the gap for them. There was no one to intercede for them. And if someone had done that, maybe God would have looked at them ultimately differently. Now, this is not to say, of course, that we can just pray for anyone, someone who's a, a convinced, hardened atheist who does not want anything to do with God's kingdom and who is impenitent of all their sins uh, and somehow get them forgiveness in a kind of uh, orthodox or, or Roman Catholic kind of way. That, that of course, is, is not the case. That, that's not what I'm talking about. But there are people... And the sort of people I have in mind are people like you and people like me. There are people who could be saved if they had somebody there interceding for them. And because of that, when we see one of us, one of those who has believed in the Lord, turning away and getting into problems, or maybe simply just not strong enough to pray physically, uh, you know what illness is like? People can be so ill sometimes that they, they can't pray. They, they don't feel like praying. They, they can't uh, verbalize things. Now, in those cases, we stand in the gap. And the scary thought is that if we don't, then actually their healing and their salvation, ultimately their forgiveness, may actually not happen because we didn't make the effort. Now, this has got huge implications. You can understand, then, why Paul, in almost every one of his letters, is saying that he's praying for people. And that he's praying for these different churches he's writing to all the time. You can understand why he would be like that. And that's how we should be. If, indeed, as we know, our prayers can really influence uh, outcomes in terms of forgiveness and, and healing and people's lives in this world and in that which is to come. So we really should be praying for each other and making every effort we can for each other all the time. So Jesus said that, and of course these horrible critics say, uh, who can uh, forgive sins but God only? Verse 8, And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason these things in your hearts? Now, 
you could say that God sort of beamed down Holy Spirit power into the Lord Jesus so that he, he just sort of uh, said um, what he had to say and that he immediately, by a, a zap of Holy Spirit power, knew what was going on in the minds of people. And that, of course, is possible, and one cannot say that that is not uh, the case. But it seems to me that the Lord Jesus was, if you see what I mean, a bit more human than that. It seems to me that he was of unusual perception and sensitivity. And that he himself, as the perfect man, as he who was love itself, um, was able, because of that love that he had, to be extremely perceptive and sensitive to other people, to the point that he could read minds in, in, this, uh, in this incident. Now, just bear, the thought, uh, bear that in mind, and, and spare a thought for how hard it is for a sensitive person to exist and live in an insensitive world or situation. And you think particularly of the Lord, as we've come today to, to remember him, uh, we think of the Lord in his final agony, in his passion, uh, and the whole lead-up to it, the, the court cases, the, the so-called trials, he, as the most sensitive of all people, suffering from utter brutality, from totally insensitive people. Um, this, I, I think, indicates, or is, is a window into the extent of his mental sufferings, that no, no person is simply a piece of concrete, and he really was not. I, I would go so far as to say that maybe for some people uh, physical suffering is, uh, is endured, I don't like to say easier, but I suppose that is what I, what I mean, uh, somewhat easier than others uh, endure it. Or let's put it another way, some people uh, take it so much harder. Than, than others. And why do they do that? It's because it's a purely psychological thing. They, they, they see things differently. Um, whereas for the Lord Jesus, he had a sensitivity and a purpose for being alive that was far greater than that of any other human being. Far, far greater. And so therefore the pain of the whole thing, both physically and in every aspect, uh, must have been so much harder for him. And he did this for you and me. Let's just always remember that. And so he, he says in verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Now, Mark talks a lot about the Son of Man. And it certainly seems to be the, the preferred... Um, term that the Lord uses to describe himself. In fact, in Mark 14:61, when the, the high priest asks him, so then are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That is, are you really the Son of God? That's what you're under trial for. Are you the Son of God? Jesus answers, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So, when he's asked, are you the Son of God, he basically says, yes, in the sense that I am the Son of Man. This was clearly his preference, to always identify himself as Son of Man. And this is a difficult phrase to understand, because it really seems to, 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 to be almost a, 
almost a slang phrase in parts of the Old Testament to just describe any old, any old person, any guy, any bloke, any, any fella, you know, any old human being. And there are some verses that, uh, in Job, where we read this phrase several times, well, that's what it seems to mean, and that is what it seems to mean in contemporary literature. And yet, in Daniel 7, which Jesus is alluding to, and it's quoted there, Mark 14:61, where you've got this vision of the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man becomes almost one of the highest titles for Messiah in his absolute exaltation. Why then that the juxtaposition, that the putting together of apparent opposites, the Son of Man, the ordinary bloke, will sit at the right hand of, of God, of power, and will come with the, with the cloud of, clouds of heaven? And this, as I say, Daniel 7 uses that term, Son of Man, to describe Messiah in his exaltation. And I think the whole reason for this is that it was the very humanity of Jesus which was the basis and is the basis for his exaltation. Daniel 7 puts it in that way by using the term son of man, the, uh, the ordinary bloke kind of thing, uh, and putting it together with the idea that this is the exalted Messiah at the right hand of power. Um, in fact, in Psalm 8, let's just... Uh, quickly remind ourselves of, of Psalm 8 you have the, the term used I think in exactly that, that sort of way um, this is of course quoted in the New Testament and specifically applied to, to the Lord Jesus when the psalmist looks at, at the heavens the work of your fingers this is Psalm 8 verse 3 the moon and the stars what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would visit him so man, humanity, in his weakness, and son of man, uh, are put together. You've made him lower than the angels, but you've crowned him with glory and honor, given him dominion over the works of your hands, put all things under his, under his feet. Now, this is quoted in the New Testament about the exaltation of Jesus. And so, although the very scale of the of the stage upon which we walk uh, as men are in this world is so vast that it makes us feel that we are insignificant. What is man? And who is the son of man that God should visit him? This is the whole wonder of it all. That insignificant little man, the son of man, is lifted up to this huge exaltation over all the works of God's hands. And that includes, as he's just said, uh, what are the works of God's hands? the stars, the sun and the moon, etc., that God made with his fingers, his hands, uh, in, in verse 3. So then, that's the same idea, really, as Daniel 7. This is just putting it in different terms, that the Son of Man is the one who is at the right hand of power and comes with the clouds of heaven. We who are dwarfed by the, the vastness of, of, as I say, the stage upon which we, our lives are set, the, uh, the heavens above, etc., the Son of Man who is dwarfed by that is in fact lifted up to have dominion over all those things that God has made with his hands and fingers. And so Jesus, I think, was uh, aware of that. And that's why, because he was so aware of his humanity, that's why he, he keeps on about Son of Man. And 
Mark who's emphasising zooming the camera up close on on Jesus, uh, I think is likewise emphasising this. And so it's exactly because he's Son of Man, verse 10, back in Mark 2, verse 10, uh, it's exactly because he's Son of Man that he has power to forgive sin. It's exactly because he's Son of Man that other passages say that he will judge us. The very fact that he went through all the experiences and temptations that we go through and yet never sinned, and was never phased by them in a spiritual sense, means that he can judge us, that we can stand before him and be judged for, well, why did you allow yourself to be provoked in that situation or this situation or by uh, those words that were said to you or, or whatever, uh, because the Lord Jesus, as the Son of Man, went through exactly that. And it's because he's the Son of Man that he is able, therefore, to grant forgiveness. This is what he's saying here in verse 10. The Son of Man has power to forgive sin. And putting it in a, in a more sort of uh, theological way, in Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, and 4, 15 and 16, you've got the same idea, that it was exactly because Jesus was human that we have such a matchless high priest who is able to get us real and realistic forgiveness for, for human sin. And again, I think you've got this in verse uh, 27 and 28, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, I think that what that's saying is that God's law, for example the Sabbath, was created to, to kind of bring man into line, to help man become righteous. And in fact, the, the perfection of Jesus, the moral perfection in terms of his character, is not unrelated to the fact that he perfectly fulfilled the law. The purpose of the law was not just to be a pain in the neck for man, but if it was fully obeyed, it would bring you to be as Jesus was. So let's not despise the law. It, it, it was not helpful because, in that sense, because man kept breaking it, because of the weakness of everyone. But Jesus, in his case, fulfilled it perfectly, and therefore he became Lord of the Sabbath, of, of any of these laws, because he was human, the Son of Man, because he fulfilled it and allowed it to mould him to be the person that God intended, therefore he was greater than the Sabbath, and therefore he could infringe the letter of, of the law. He could touch touch the leper. He, he could, if he wished to, to, to break some aspects, some technical uh, infringement of, of the Sabbath law, which is what they're, they're arguing about here. Uh, and you notice that he, he doesn't, I think, um, try to justify their criticisms of him, or justify himself against their criticisms of him, by saying, no, I wasn't really breaking the law, you're misinterpreting it. He actually goes, as he nearly always does in answering questions, he goes to the essence. He cuts right to the core, and he says, well, actually, I have completely fulfilled the law, so, and I did that as a son of man, so I have become Lord. You see, again, the juxtaposition of ideas. The son of man is made Lord. This is Psalm 8. This is Daniel 7. 
because of his humanity, he therefore is Lord and Saviour. And it's such a shame. It is a tragedy, really, this idea of the Trinity, the idea that Jesus was kind of born God. Um, because the whole thing is so spoilt. It's, it's all the wonder of it all, and the wonder of Jesus as a, as a person is lost. He is Lord exactly because he was the Son of Man, because he was such an ordinary person. He wasn't a divine comet that hit this earth for 33 years and then sped off in, in, into the cosmos, or back into the cosmos. He was one of us, one of our boys, one of, one of our guys. This is you know, why they had such a problem accepting him, that he was the guy they knew from Nazareth. And so then, this same Jesus is our Lord. And incidentally, I want to make the point that whenever Jesus talks about who he is, for example, when, when, he, when they say, Are you the Christ? Son of the Blessed. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Whenever he defines who he is, or when he comments upon his being, his person, his nature, he always continually puts the emphasis on the activity, the activity that this uh, results in. He says, for example, in Mark 8, verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed. He never just says, I am the Son of Man, period, stop, dot com. He, he doesn't. He always goes on to, to say something about his action and his activity. Now, I've spent a lot of my time, as probably you have, because I know that you also, like me, are, are non-Trinitarians, are, are Unitarian in, in that sense. I've spent a lot of my time arguing with people about the nature of Jesus. And we seem to think that the, the key question is what was the nature of Jesus? Who was Jesus? And the, you know, that, that is of course a key question, but it should never end there. The question has got to go much further than that, because the essential question for me and for you is what does Jesus do for me? I think I've been kind of academic. I don't mean to be. But for me this is so important, because otherwise it's all just an empty argument. Okay, we who are non-Trinitarians, in my opinion, and I'm biased of course, but in my opinion, we win. We win on points. We win the debate. And? And so what? Well, the and, and the and so what, is because his humanity means so much for us that he now becomes the living example, the living and real comforter for each and every one of us. The one who has set us the, the, the pattern that we who are also son of men really can follow that same path to glory, just as we started by saying that Mark's Gospel is really the story of the journeys of Jesus and of his disciples following him in the way, with him going in front of them going through the things he went through, through the good times and the bad times, acceptance, rejection, two steps back and three forward, but always presented as going up to Jerusalem and to the death that awaited him there, the final rejection, and yet also to the resurrection and the, and the ascension, the, the path to glory. That is our realistic pattern.
Thanks to him.